You know, another thing I've come to realize as I've gone through the Superman Begins series is how dangerous a new Superman origin story really is. You see, when you retell the origin, there's a group of people out there who will regard that as their definitive origin, and everything else is an imposter. Lines get drawn and people choose sides. Now, if you retell Superman's origin, I don't know, four times in ten years, the best case scenario is you're going to have a, a fan base divided into four equal parts. But that assumes that nobody prefers origin stories from decades previously. Let's face it, people like that are out there. What I've come to realize is, the more DC retells Superman's origin, the more risk of Superman himself becoming unsustainable, because there's no common denominator to unite the fan base. Case in point. The New 52. I'm done. To me, that's just not Superman. You can put whatever symbol on his chest, or logo on his cover that you like, but I refuse to accept that character as Superman. For a newbie fan, though, they have nothing else to compare it to. So anything except the New 52 is going to feel like a pretender to the throne. So I now have a crucial point of disagreement with somebody that I might buy a beer for in a bar under different circumstances. But he prefers some lame, goofy, jive-ass version of Superman, and that makes him my sworn mortal enemy. So, you still think reboots and new origin stories and shit are a good idea? Hey, your attention, please! This Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. everybody, and welcome back to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. I'm your host, Trentus Magnus, and right now, I'm your guide to all Superman origin stories. The ones in comics, anyway. And the ones I have the most to talk about. Anyway, so that's me. This week's episode in my Superman Begins miniseries relates to Birthright. For reasons that'll become clear later on, this is a kind of sensitive subject for me, but for now, I think we'd better talk about the secret origin of Birthright. See what I did there? Now, as I understand it, Mark Wade was approached about writing a reintroduction for Superman. The idea he had was to embrace the modern world, update the mythos in some ways, restore some things that had been removed in John Byrne's Man of Steel, and 
pretty much give us Wade's unfiltered, all thrilla, no filla version of Superman. Now, I do not consider myself a student of birthrights history and development, but I've read several interviews with Mark Wade concerning birthright, and the one thing he doesn't seem to have ever said is that he was hired to reboot Superman. Believe it or not. Now, other people at DC definitely use that word. Uh, Dan DiDio on a f seemed to uh, use it on a few occasions after Birthright had gotten underway, and fans certainly perceived it as a reboot. But I can't find a single instance of Wade using that word in reference to Birthright. The original agenda appears to have been sim to simply let Mark Wade tell his definitive origin for Superman in a sort of maxi-series version of Marvel's ultimate concept. It wasn't intended to be a reboot. At least not at first. A lot of people have called bullshit on that, but a one-off type thing seems to be what Wade thought he was doing, at least at first. And I think there's some evidence for that. First, as I say, there's his lack of using the word reboot in connection with Birthright. But second, and maybe more importantly, the story itself gives every indication of being modern. There's no effort being made to allow room for the Burn Age stories to have occurred. My belief is that a comics wonk like Mark Wade wouldn't leave something as important as continuity to chance. He would have taken continuity into account. But third, DC had attempted to half-ass jettison the Burn origin back in 2001 or 2002 with Superman number 166, where... Jeff Loeb tried very poorly to reinstate Superman's pre-crisis origin. But fans rebelled, and so DC backpedaled on it. It seems hard to believe that they'd knowingly try pissing all over Burns' Man of Steel again just a few years later. What I think happened is that DiDio pissant, or someone else at DC, Eddie Baganza maybe, approved Birthright as a pet project for Wade, and fans responded favorably to it. However, this wasn't expected. This caught DC off guard, but they ran with it anyway, and so midway through the series, they announced that this was Superman's new origin story. But really, that, that's all black helicopter conspiracy theory stuff. Who knows what actually happened? The other thing, though, is that whether Birthright was intended to be Superman's new origin or not, it is not a reboot. Birthright was officially called the new origin story, and the existing continuity was eventually shoved into Birthright's timeline. By definition, that's not a reboot. That's a retcon. And I think that's why Birthright ultimately failed. It was awesome as a new introduction but it was simply unworkable as a retcon. People, words have meaning. A bicycle is a bicycle. Just because it has two wheels doesn't mean you get to call it a Harley. Again, I say that John Byrne's Man of Steel is the only true reboot Superman has ever had. But,
enough yammering about birthright's history. Should probably start talking about birthright itself, so here we go. Writer is Mark Wade. Artist is Lionel Yu. Yes, I realize other people worked on it, but those are the two I give a shit about. The story begins with a retelling of the destruction of planet Krypton. Jarrell laments the fact that his world accomplished miracles no one will remember while he's busy preparing infant Kal-El's voyage. Kal-El's shuttle fires into space moments before the planet's destruction. Jarrell and his wife Laura regret that they will never know if Kal-El survives the journey. Time winds forward to, to present-day West Africa, where an ethnic conflict between the fictional Guri and Taraba clans is claiming lives. This conflict is, incidentally, very reminiscent of the Hutu-Tutsi wars in Rwanda. Rwanda. Clark Kent, a freelance reporter in his early 20s, arrives to cover the conflict and to meet with the Guri political leader and human rights activist Kobe Azuru. They first meet as Kent is forced to protect Azuru from an assassination attempt. Kent reflects a hail of bullets away from Azuru, but in the chaos and confusion of the firefight, is able to deflect suspicion of his superhuman powers. Over the course of several days, Clark and Azuru establish a, a rapport and become friends. Azuru emphasizes the Guri tradition of honoring ancestors through wearing symbolic clothing and working for human rights. While Clark and Kobe establish a quick connection, Kobe Azuru's sister, Abina, is suspicious of, Clark, of Kent's motives and at one point accuses him of cultural imperialism and acting in a condescending, quote-unquote, white savior manner to Guri. Alone in the African savannas, Clark tries out his developing, his developing superpowers, flying ahead of birds and animals and playfully wrestling a lion. Later, Clark interviews the Taraba politician, Representative Kabil, who dislikes Kobe and oppresses Guri rights. While protecting Abina Azuru from a thrown bomb, Clark hears a commotion and flies back to the rally, carrying Abina Azuru on his back, where Kobe has already been fatally stabbed. Enraged, Clark grabs the fleeing assassin and throws him into a wall, demanding to know who hired him. The terrified killer raising, raises his arm, pointing directly at Kabil, who is incidentally surrounded by media. Kabil is besieged with questions and is later forced to resign. A final Africa scene reveals Abinas Asuru, who has assumed her party's leadership role after her brother's death, now knows Clark is a super-powerful being, but she promises to remain silent. Clark returns to Smallville, determined to learn more about his alien heritage. He tells his mother that he wants to unearth his spaceship. He and Martha use the data tablet that came with Clark from Krypton to examine holographic records of Kryptonian history. Inspired by Kobe Azuru's stories of honoring tradition, Clark realizes the S insignia had great significance on Krypton and seemed to symbolize the Kryptonians' hope for a better tomorrow. He refuses to wear a mask while taking flight. Martha's solution is that only Clark's human half requires a disguise. She dresses him in professional, nerdy attire that stands apart from his usual look and gives him prescription glasses to wear. She promises they will refract light so no one will notice his startling blue eyes, which might otherwise give him away. 
Clark learns to slouch and act nervous and clumsy to distance his civilian identity from tall, self-assertive Superman. He travels to Metropolis to apply for a position at the Daily Planet. When he arrives, he finds robotic, anti-terrorist helicopters crisscrossing the sky. Upon reaching the Daily Planet building, he sees the publisher, Mr. Galloway, berating Jimmy Olsen for fetching him the wrong yogurt. Lois Lane appears and yells at Galloway for humiliating Jimmy. When Galloway storms off, Clark introduces himself to Lois and is immediately smitten with her. He finally meets Perry White for a one-on-one -on -one interview, but it doesn't go well. Moments later, a miniature robo-chopper hovering outside goes berserk and opens fire on the Daily Planet building. When no one is looking, Clark ducks out to change into his Superman costume and flies off to, re to repel the helicopters. When he rips a radio transmitter off of one of the wrecked units, he uses his powers to trace the signal to the incomplete skyscraper in the distance. LexCorp. Clark bursts into Lex Luthor's office just as Luthor is speaking to someone via radio. He tells Luthor he saw the signals and he know he sabotaged the army choppers. Luthor is amused that he thinks anyone could possibly convict him on such evidence and demands to know who designed the technology that allows him to fly. At that moment, LexCorp's armored security barges in with Lois and Jimmy right behind them. When Lois asks what Lex's connection is to Metropolis's new hero, Lex pretends to endorse the caped figure, saying he's a friend of Lex Luthor. The next day, the Daily Planet webpage dubs the hero Superman. Luthor is ready with a cover story. A disgruntled army, a disgruntled army employee was behind the attacks. LexCorp has stepped in to produce the robotic helicopters now that the Army's model has been recalled. But the LexCorp connection is an unprecedented black mark on, Le on Luther's sterling reputation. Perry decides that Clark has earned his shot. Lois and Clark visit L Luther at the massive towers that forms his corporate headquarters. Luther greets them both, but when Clark extends his, hands as if, his hand as if they are an old acquaintance, Luther coldly dismisses it, claiming to have never met him. He presses a button on the console in his desk, and the room transforms into a holographic theater. Luther asserts that he is, first and foremost, an astrobiologist, and, de and describes many luc lucrative LexCorp inventions that were designed solely on his theories of possible space life. He then pulls up images of Superman and makes an official statement. Superman is not of this Earth. Clark reports Luther's findings to Perry, who orders, who orders him to write it up. Clark protests, knowing that the revelation that Superman is an alien will drive people away, and points that they have no real proof. Perry insists, saying Luther is the leading authority on this matter, which is proof enough. When Superman now goes out to rescue those in need, people are too fearful to even go near him. While sulking in an empty restaurant, Clark hears a commotion as a suspension bridge across town inexplicably blows up. Superman speeds off to reconnect the bridge cables, but another explosion rocks the bridge. In his office, Lex Luthor watches the disaster and triggers bombs along the support column, making it appear that Superman is the one tearing it apart. As the finishing touch, a mechanical drone in the water aims kryptonite radiation at Superman, causing him to collapse. Realizing he's made an enemy in Lex Luthor, Clark looks back, on, looks back on his childhood in Smallville when a young Lex arrived. Lex was a quiet genius, but his intellect alienated him from everyone around him. 
Lex's parents were unloving and ruthlessly trained him to become the next Einstein. Clark muses that they were underestimating him. But despite his contemptuous exterior, Lex warmed to Clark when he discovered that they shared a common interest, astronomy. Unfortunately, Lex was so fundamentally disturbed that he started spending increasing amounts of time locked in his makeshift laboratory next to the Luther mansion. During one of these periods of seclusion, Clark visited Lex, who allowed Clark inside to unveil his new invention, a subspace communicator. Lex hoped that with a piece of meteor rock, which is kryptonite, he would finally be able to open a wormhole into visions from an alien civilization. While aware of the radiation emanating from the rock, Lex assured Clark that it was perfectly harmless. Clark, stricken with sudden pain, staggered back looking ghastly. He was experiencing his first bout of kryptonite poisoning. Lex misreads Clark's expression and believed he had become afraid of him like everyone else. Dismissing him from the lab and commencing with his experiment, he managed to open a portal into events and times of the planet Krypton for a moment, but his generator overloaded and exploded, engulfing the house in flames. Lex, his hair burned off, staggered from the flames to uncover the piece of kryptonite that was integral to his machine. He neglected his father, who was buried underneath rubble and burning alive. In the present day, Lex begins piecing together instruments to recreate his failed experiment from long ago in the bowels of the research facility, hoping to retrieve the alien visions he saw before. As expected, the kryptonite creates a wormhole, and Luther is greeted with a wealth of visions from the history of Krypton. The next day, the newspapers blare warnings of an upcoming alien invasion, showing photos of alien warships bearing Superman's insignia. At the Daily Planet, Clark hears that the footage has been analyzed by experts and has been confirmed to be undoctored and 100% legitimate. Having seen footage from the, daily, from the data tablet that was in his spacecraft, Clark knows that Lex must have used similar methods to uncover these images. Soon afterward, Metropolis is besieged by giant, monstrous-looking warships that bear Superman's logo on their face, including a giant mechanical spider. They begin killing indiscriminately. Troops empty out of the vehicles in Kryptonian garb, all bearing red capes and red S-shields, with their faces covered. Just as Superman is about to intervene, Luther uses the spires of his skyscraper to project a city-wide web of kryptonite radiation from which Superman cannot hide. When the city police start firing on the vulnerable Superman, he assumes his Clark disguise and meets up with Lois, who comments on how sick he looks. Upon returning to the newsroom, which is in chaos, Perry yells at Clark for coming to the office without a story on this crisis. Stripped of his powers and faced with imminent dismissal, Clark leaves a note of resignation on his desk. When Lois catches him leaving, she calls him a spineless worm and then storms off. The alien commander, a man dressed in armor, calls himself Vanguard and declares war on Earth. Clark, his confidence restored by Lois's sermon, dons his costume and, ch- and changes Van- and charges Vanguard's troops before they can open fire on a crowd of innocents. When Superman labels him and his men actors, Vanguard beats down the weakened hero and whispers to him, they're not in it for the money. They believe Luther is right and that Superman will turn, out, will turn on those weaker than him. Meanwhile, Lois sneaks back into the Lexcorp building, which Luther ordered abandoned. 
She sees Luther giving orders to his men over his telescreen and grabs his priceless shard of the kryptonite with the S engraving out of its energy core, disabling the entire machine. However, she fails to notice Luther, who emerges from the shadows behind her. With the kryptonite removed, most of the robots attacking Metropolis are revealed as holograms and vanish, along with the kryptonite web over the city. Back at LexCorp, Luther grabs the kryptonite crystal from Lois's hands and demands she tell him how much she knows. When Lois tells him everyone will know about his hoax, Lex drags Lois to a wall where he uses a remote control to open, a ba open out onto a balcony. He reveals that he placed a kryptonite bomb inside the suit of every Kryptonian soldier and that they are primed to go off and take out Superman in the blast. However, his men don't know about the bombs since Luther sort of left that part out of the hiring brief. He then shuts Lois off shoves Lois off the skyscraper balcony. Superman is still down below and grappling with Vanguard, whose armor suddenly starts glowing green. Superman soars up with Vanguard in his grip, ripping the bomb off moments before it explodes. In the instant before Lois hits the ground, Superman rushes up and catches her just in time. Superman returns to LexCorp, where Luther is feverishly trying to reconnect with the static images to Krypton, this time to establish direct contact. Luther begins requesting to be sent weapons before the machine overloads and explodes, embedding several kryptonite pellets in his face. Visions of the imminent destruction of Krypton swirl on the viewscreen. Back on Krypton, many years in the past, one of the Kryptonians points to the sparring adversaries and, sees, and says he can see them on his viewing screen and wonders if they're real. A desperate Luther screams out, No, I am real. We can save each other. Jarrell and Lara appear seconds after they have launched Baby Kal-El and say goodbye to one another. An awestruck Superman realizes that his name is Kal-El. Luther attacks Superman from behind, telling him he's doing, he, he's doing him a favor. It's agony to be alone in the world. Superman tells Luther he wasn't always alone. He made his choice and punches him several times across the jaw. A bloodied Luther lies defeated as Superman runs up and calls out something into the void, but the transmission is cut off too soon, and Superman thinks his parents never heard what he was trying to tell them. In the aftermath, Luther is scarred from the kryptonite shrapnel that sprayed in his face and is facing indictment. Clark Kent writes the article that ruins Luther's reputation, although Luther has already assembled his, his lawyers and will probably beat the charges. Vanguard was actually the leader of a group of extremist survivalists. Clark and Lois resolve their differences, with Lois revealing she intercepted Clark's res resignation letter, knowing he wouldn't quit. Clark takes the opportunity to ask her out and is instantly rebuffed. He jokingly asks if Lois would like him better if he could leap tall buildings in a single bound. Lois, stuttering, asks Clark if he thinks she has a lame crush on Superman, implying that she does. During the last moments of Krypton, Jarrell and Lara look at a viewing screen with a static image crackling from it. A figure, barely visible and wearing the S, the S shield on his chest, says, Mother? Father? I made it. Realizing that their efforts were successful, Jarrell and Lara kiss as the building collapses around them. Okay, so I guess we better get down to the brass tacks and... The nitty-gritty and the bottom of the barrel. I'm on the record for being a major, 
devotee of Mark Wade's work, I've said again and again that I've never read a Mark Wade comic and then thought to myself afterward, damn, that was a real piece of crap. But that gets just a little bit shaky as far as Birthright is, is concerned. Taken as what I think Birthright was intended to be, which, again, is Mark Wade's vision of a modern update of Superman's origin, I think it's a great series, and it's got a lot of high points as far as writing is concerned. But taken as what Birthright was, original, was eventually forced to become, which, again, is Superman's new retconned origin... I think it's a crashing, unmitigated, inexcusable failure. Still, I think the evidence is somewhat on my side that Wade didn't intend for Birthright to have any ramifications on the then-existing continuity when he first started the thing. So, I choose to take a happier point of view about Birthright. On that basis, I think Birthright is a great Superman origin story, and Obviously, other people agree because it had a clear influence on Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. Speaking of influences, the Smallville TV show was a pretty clear influence on Birthright. Martha somewhat resembles Annette O'Toole, and the same could be said of John Schneider and Jonathan Kent. In hell, in several panels, Clark has a, he has more than a few similarities to Tom Welling. Jonathan and Martha being younger is also a Smallville thing, too. These aren't old fuddy-duddies. They're still pretty young and vibrant, and you could believe they had the energy to keep up with Clark when he was growing up. In fact, you could, you could impose some aspects of the first season or two of Smallville onto Birthright fairly easily. And maybe not everything, but a lot of stuff. And speaking of Smallville, one major change that Wade introduced was reincorporating Lex Luthor into Clark's childhood in the town of Smallville. Now granted, it was a brief thing in Birthright. Lex wasn't a permanent fixture in Smallville, like he had been in the Silver Age, but there was a clear friendship and connection between Clark and Lex. And I have to tell you, I appreciated that. Um, sometimes easy to forget that this was a kind of sad loss instituted by John Byrne. Now, I liked Byrne's depiction of Superman and Lex being strangers to one another, but locking horns pretty much right away. Because we've all had experiences like that. Now, maybe not on the same scale, but I think everyone has experienced that moment in life where you meet somebody that's your negative, your equal opposite. It happens sometimes in life. And my inner 10 or 11-year-old definitely identified with that. But in the final analysis, I think the idea of Clark and Lex being friends turned enemies is just so much more powerful and epic. And there's a fairly clear Smallville TV influence here, where the Luthers have roots in Metropolis, and Lex is constantly being denied love and affection as he's being pushed towards greatness by his father and all that stuff. Anyway, point is... I really dug the birthright version of Lex Luthor. Because it's hard not to empathize with the guy in some ways. His brilliance has isolated him from most human relationships. You could argue he has no real faculty to relate to other people. It's lonely at the top, to be sure, but you, you just find yourself 
feeling for him a little bit, feeling for Lex. What he does is wrong. There's no question about it, but I kind of feel sorry for that genius teenager in Smallville. Wade managed to restore that aspect of Lex from the Silver Age, and I really appreciated it. He felt superior to most people around him, and some ways it's kind of hard to argue that he isn't. His issue isn't that he's somehow been humiliated by someone or anything like that. It's that he feels like he's surrounded by jealous morons and seeks after alien life in the belief that they can provide the type of pure acceptance that he craves. Whether or not that's even true isn't the point anymore. It's what drives him. So, yes, there's inherently a superiority complex, and possibly a very justified one. But at the end of the day, the guy is really just looking for a friend, like Clark says. How sad is that? Incidentally, Wade said that, given his druthers, he would have restored the mad scientist version of Lex rather than sticking with the corporate Lex we've seen so much of lately. He said that a lot of people he respects, though, love the corporate Lex, and so there has to be something to the concept, even if Wade himself doesn't fully connect to it. That's the main reason he kept it in this version. Got really no follow-up for that, other than to say I just thought that was interesting. As to Clark, Wade shows us a depiction of the character that had possibly never been seen before. The Silver and Bronze Age Superman recalled his time on Krypton. There was never a point when it was revealed to him because it never needed to be. He remembered it. The Burn Age Superman had no idea he wasn't even Jonathan and Martha's natural child until he was about 17 or 18 or so. But when he discovered his true origins, it didn't change the fact that he thought of himself as a human, first and foremost. Wade's Clark is different. This is a guy who's well aware of the fact that he's different, and most likely an alien, but he's a guy who's basically at peace with it. This is not a source of alienation for him. He's perfectly at ease with who he is, and if anything, he's actually curious and eager to learn about his true heritage. This had never been done before in Superman comics, unless you count the Golden Age. But it would be a long tangent to go on to, to explain why I don't think we should count the Golden Age, so we'll skip it. Again, this is part and parcel of what Wade was up to when he was writing Birthright. He took the characters we're all familiar with, tore them apart, figured out what makes them tick, glued them back together, and then wrote solid characterizations for all of them. Then you get to Lois. John Byrne wrote Lois as a sort of frigid bitch. So anything's better than that, but Wade's introduction to Lois doesn't immediately endear her to anybody. She has a restraining order against Jimmy. Really? Maybe that's supposed to be a joke and I'm just too stupid to get it, but that's just a real jerk thing to do with somebody, you know? Of course... This is a companion bit to her defending Jimmy from Quentin Galloway, so maybe these two balance each other out. And then again, she did defend Clark in issue number seven. There's another thing I got in my notes. Basically, 
everybody from the planet office ditches Clark so they can meet someplace else without him. And then Lois realizes what's going on and kind of speaks up to defend him. Now, I've seen this exact thing done to people myself in real life and had to do what Lois does here and defend that person. So I kind of like this aspect. I appreciated that Lois would do that. When I first read this series, I thought Perry White was a bit overdone. I thought he was a bit too broad and caricatured. Now, because of that, you don't really get much of a sense of who he is as a person. But it was in some interview or podcast or something. Wade said that this is pretty much his view of Perry. There's just not much complication to that character. He's one of those ciphers who really won't benefit from too much elaborate detail. It's better to, to just play him a little broadly and save the humanization for other characters. So, whatever you think about that. Now, in the just fucked up enough to be true category, there's a sequence where Clark first arrives in the Daily Planet newsroom where the publisher, Quentin Galloway, torments Jimmy Olsen. Supposedly... Wade based this on a certain editor he worked with at Marvel who really treated other people that way. Hey, I don't know. Now, as for smaller stuff, the bits of Krypton we get are interesting. Again, more evidence that this wasn't intended to be a retcon is the culture of this version of Krypton. I can't envision a society as highly developed as this one, ever creating a device like the Eradicator. It just doesn't make sense. So, apart from that, Superman's debut was an interesting moment. This is one of the bigger changes Wade introduced in Birthright. In John Byrne's Man of Steel, Superman's first public rescue was done in plain clothes as he had no outfit to use before swooping into action. Now, I think there's a pretty clear influence with a pretty clear movie influence was Superman's debut. However, and my hat is off, Wade had the good sense to not turn this into a shot-for-shot remake of the helicopter rescue from Superman the movie. As with his Smallville influences, it's there, but it's understated. You're not constantly getting beat over the head with Wade's influences. I can think of a certain other writer of a Superman origin story who could maybe take a lesson here. So, is everything golden? Not really. First off, there's the Africa stuff. I'm not specifically opposed to it, so much as I don't like what it's meant to imply about Superman. Citizen of the world and all of that bullshit. It's... Guys, look, here's the deal. Superman's rocket landed in America. Superman was raised in America by Americans. It's okay for him to have a fundamentally American viewpoint. I'm not put off by the nationalities of James Bond, Harry Potter, Zorro, or the Scarlet Pimpernel. So why should the rest of the world be bothered by Superman's American heritage? I mean, whatever. It's not worth getting pissed off about, but... There it is. So, I wasn't a big fan of the globe-trotting aspect. More because of what it was supposed to say about Superman. But the weird thing is, I enjoyed that part of the story as a subplot, so... There you have it. Even something I don't like 
Wade can still make me like. Except for the next thing. Superman's so-called soul vision. Now, as others have said, there are a lot of ways this same basic effect could have been achieved. You could write it that Clark can hear the sound of a heart scraping to a stop as somebody dies. And it's just a horrifying sound, and that's what ultimately informs his no-kill policy. Or pro-life policy, whatever you want to call it. But the soul vision thing just seems... I don't know... weird. And directly related to that is Clark's vegetarianism. Now, Mark Wade can say whatever he likes about not having an agenda there, but simply following through on the character that he developed, but people... I just don't buy it. Don't. Do not. It feels like I'm being preached at. Now, whether or not Wade is in fact preaching at me is not the point anymore. The point is, I feel like I'm being preached at when I read it. That's all that matters. So, anyway, I've blathered on at length about Wade's writing and... This may suggest to some of you that I'm a little bit less enthused about the art, and I kind of have to plead guilty to that. Look, I enjoy Lionel Yu's work on other characters. When he draws characters like Wolverine or the New Avengers or a lot of other things, I think he does a great job. But at the same time, Yu has a dark, scratchy, and gritty style that's just, it's foreign to what Superman's all about. Now, to be fair to Lionel Yu, he did attempt to modify his style to accommodate Superman, and for that he should be applauded. But at the same time, <clears throat> all the modification in the world isn't going to make me believe that he's the guy for the job. I've often wondered how Birthright might have turned out had Ed McGinnis or Michael Turner or really any other penciler handled the art. But as it is, there's an occasional sternness to you, Superman, that I just don't think benefits the character at all. It just looks constantly irritated. Now, triple underline this part. I respect Yu's work, and I think he's a real talent in the field, but his art style just isn't geared to Superman. And there's nothing wrong with that. So... I mean no offense when I say that I wish someone else had done the art for this book, because Yu's work is easily the weakest link in the chain in my opinion. Everybody else is on their A-game, but Yu's contribution is so divergent, stylistically and traditionally, that he ends up detracting from the overall impact of the book. Now, I doubt Yu is listening to this right now, and even if he is, I doubt he gives two shits what I think, but I want to be crystal clear that I love his work. And I admire basically everything I've ever seen him draw. My only point is I simply don't think he's, he's a good match for Superman. That stuff out of the way, you does a great job on a technical level of pacing out each page, assembling panel layouts, and, and basically helping to tell Wade's story. Except for the basics of his line style, I actually have no complaint against you on any technical level. I think he did a great job in telling the story. It's just the line style itself is what bothers me. 
But on a technical level, I think you as a tremendously gifted artist. For that matter, I seriously doubt Mark Wade is listening to this show either, and even if he is, I doubt he gives two shits what I think any more than Lionel U does, but I want to be crystal clear that I seriously enjoyed Birthright and think he knocked it out of the park. This was a clear labor of love for him, and the end product is something I'm proud to have, both in my long boxes and on my bookshelf, so thank you, Mr. Wade. All right, so that's enough of that. I'm going to play some promos, and I'll be right back. Sit tight. Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay, so what do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know, those things make for paper, especially the old ones? Whoa, those things. Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. I like to actually read comic books, especially the old ones. I like them so much I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books. Lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want. Or you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at twotruefreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website, and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. (coughs) No, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster. But you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil. You get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. 
Take the Dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com. Magnus here. I've got an announcement to make. Moving day is coming. I'm here to confirm that the rumors are all true. Yes, Magnus Media Enterprises Limited is being bought out by Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. Lawyers from both sides are still currently hashing out the finer details, but what this means for my loyal subjects is that Trentus Magnus, Punch's Reality, will soon join up with the two true freaks podcast network which can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com that's t-w-o-t-r-u-e-f-r-e-a-k-s for right now the target launch date is november the 26th 2013 but you never know if when or how things may change but that's the plan for the moment as a side note I'd like to add that this move will not result in any changes in content. Additionally, there are no circumstances where I'll be laid off and the operation of Trentus Magnus Punches Reality be turned over to podcasters in India. Everything will proceed as it has been. I'll add additional details as they become available, but I'd like to thank all of you for your support, and I hope you'll continue once we've moved over to the TTF feed. Please watch the Trentus Magnus Facebook page for additional details.
Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at magnus.libson.com. But that's about to change. I'm preparing to move to the Two True Freaks podcast network, and the target launch date for that is November of 2013. You can also find Trentus Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which on Facebook is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, so keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is copyright Magnus Media Enterprises Limited, Wisconsin Falls, California, in association with the DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy.